as entrepreneurs, we build great businesses to support our clients. We do well by doing well by our clients. Well, today I've got a special treat. We've got a two-four, if you will. I have a master sommelier, one of only about 220 around the world, who's going to be joining us. And he's going to share with us a story of one of the most successful wine families out there, the ninth largest winery, and some great entrepreneurial lessons. But at the same time, he's going to tell us how we can enjoy life even more. I'm John Bowen. We're at AES Nation. Stay tuned. You do not want to miss this episode. Ordinary success? No way. You want amazing, remarkable, exceptional breakthroughs. Dig deep. Think bold. Drive hard. Watch yourself soar beyond your dreams. AESNation.com Larry O'Brien, I am so excited to have you here. I had the good fortune to be at my golf club, uh, Cordoval, here in Silicon Valley, and went to a wine dinner, and you were there, and you were leading the charge on a great wine, Kendall Jackson, and uh, we had a super evening, and I said, would you join and share all those insights? So you're here. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, well, good morning, John. It's a pleasure to join you. And uh, I'll, I'll be honest, as I mentioned to you, I was a little nervous because uh, I'm just a wine schlep. Uh, I, I'm the national evangelist for uh, a very successful brand, Kendall Jackson. But um, entrepreneur, I yeah, wasn't so sure. But uh, as we discussed the, the interview a little more, I felt more and more comfortable. And I, I hope I can provide some insight for you and your subscribers. Well, and, and one of the things that uh, we do is we, we talk, you know, we, we're very much about entrepreneurs and building great solutions, products, and uh, the Jackson Family Wineries has, you know, a number of labels and uh, as the ninth largest winery really in the world. I mean, it, it's, it's a pretty amazing entrepreneurial story. And uh, Jess Jackson, who started it, uh, has a very interesting story, and you shared this with us, uh, you know, uh, that evening. And unfortunately, Jess isn't available. Uh, he's since passed, but the the family has continued. And what I thought we'd do, Larry, is you know, I'm always asking for the backstory. And the, today, what I'd love to do is have you give a little backstory of the winery, and then we'll progress into some of the challenges of uh, you know having a great life from an entrepreneurial standpoint and really enjoying wine. Cause I do, and you know, and I get caught up on all those issues and I don't know how many wineries there are and wines and all the confusion, but let, let's go and, and maybe share, um, you know, as a, the evangelist uh, for Kendall Jackson, a little of the backstory of how this all happened because it's an unlikely event, certainly to not only be a successful winery, but to be, you know, uh, a part of the, the family that, you know, building the ninth largest winery in the world. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt that, that the entrepreneurial story of Jess Jackson and his wife, Barbara Banky, because they're inseparable. Uh, without Barbara Banky, uh, Jess doesn't build this amazing empire. And, and it is an empire. We are the ninth largest wine company in the United States by volume. Internationally, I, I got to imagine we're certainly in the top top 20. Um, and, and Jess came to wine avocationally. It wasn't until 1975. He had been a successful lawyer in San Francisco for many years. And 
Um, I, as a midlife crisis, just got interested in vineyards. It wasn't a little red Corvette or a motorcycle uh, that caught his attention as he approached his 50s. It was uh, getting back to the land, his mother's side, his father's side. They had farmed, uh, in addition to many other vocational pursuits, Colorado, New Mexico, agriculture was a big part of Jess's background. And in 75, he decided that he was going to buy a little bit of land up in Lake County, California, hardly the, you know, the epicenter of wine grape growing in California. But in 1975, after he bought a little land, he cleared the land, planted some Chardonnay, and for the next seven years, he was off on this sort of weekend warrior agricultural pursuit. Well, Larry, let me just stop you for a quick second. In 1975, um, you know that that was a few years ago. What was the sure. wine industry in California like? Was that was I mean because that's not known as the wine region, but I'm not even thinking Napa was that well known as the wine no. region in '75. You're absolutely correct. Is I will describe the wine scene in 1975 as half carafe, full carafe, Burgundy, Chablis, and Rosé. That was kind of your choices. So I don't know that Jess really understood even at that point what he had embarked upon it, it, it this was just to 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 get out of san francisco to 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 find a quality of life uh to get his daughters um familiar with something beyond the daughters of privilege of a san francisco lawyer so his, his two daughters at that point jennifer and laura and his wife jane kendall uh just had been married two times and jane kendall uh was with Jess for the first half of his life, and Barbara Banky joined Jess in the second half of his life, and really in that entrepreneurial phase uh, beginning around 1989. But the, the whole wine thing for Jess was basically get back to the land, kind of center his his chi, if you would. I'm not all that Asian and philosophical, but that's clearly what he was attempting to do, was to get back to the land. But after, a, after some challenges, because you just alluded to it, we weren't a wine-consuming nation in 1975. We were a beer-drinking, spirits-drinking, Coca-Cola-drinking nation. And even in 1982, Jess was forced to take his grapes and make wine. Up until that point, from 75 to 82, he had only been a grape grower and selling his fruit to a local winery, Fetzer, that was just on the other side of the county line over in Mendocino. And Barney Fetzer became a buddy, and they they just grew the grapes, and Barney bought the grapes, and everything was fine until 1982 when a glut of fruit in the California marketplace forced Jess to become the unintentional winemaker in 1982. So, and those first steps were very, uh, very fraught with peril. Well, let's go to 82, uh, Larry. Was... Was there a lot of um, you know grapes that had just grown and you know the the vineyards had taken off and the wineries hadn't caught up in the demand or was demand it was, okay it simply wasn't there I mean again you have to remember it's 1982 White Zinfandel which was the wine that launched us down a wine consuming path in the U S we did not become a wine drinking nation until just about. You know, I would call it 10 years ago, about one generation ago. So from 1982 until the current day, we go from, well, we drink a little bit of wine. Now we drink as much wine as, as nearly any other beverage alcohol available. We are the largest consumer of wine in the world as a nation. Now our per capita consumption, 
we lag behind other old world European nations. But as a nation, we drink more wine than anybody else. And I think a huge part of Jess's success was whether he realized it or not, was the fact that white Zinfandel would put us on that path. Jess never pursued that white Zinfandel uh, approach. He pursued the Chardonnay approach. He was the first well-known producer of Chardonnay in California. And that all started in 1982 when, because of an excess of fruit and a dearth of demand, we ended up with too much fruit. And Jess had to turn that crop into cash or that land starts to lose its viability. So he turned the crop into cash, but there was a lot of mistakes made away. Well, so did he, it was at the start of the winery at that point, he decided yes, 1982 to- 1982 was our first vintage. Okay. We made about 16,000 cases of wine at that point. And so not only was he challenged to turn grapes into wine, something he had never even envisioned doing, he had to go out and sell 16,000 cases of wine in 1983. So, okay, how do you get grapes to wine? And then how do you turn wine into cash? And he accomplished both those things within about an 18 month period. Well, let's just stop for a second. You know, there, you know, like every business, uh, you know, the wine business is a business. And, uh, you know, I, I am in uh, the central coast area, you know, the south end of Silicon Valley, as you know, Larry, and uh, yeah, we've got a lot of family wineries. I've got an acre of Merlot, and uh, I have more respect since I got an acre of Merlot <laughs> <laughs> on how hard the business is. And uh, I have had many friends who have you know, made money elsewhere and got into the wine business. And it, it's one of those typical businesses where you know, you're, the way to make a small fortune in the business is to start with a large or there's two happy moments when you start. And when you sell it, uh, yeah. how, how did Jess, I mean, this is got, you know, he was early on this, um, you know, and 16,000 cases is a significant, you know, boutique winery, but it didn't send the single of a uh, Kendall Jackson uh, Chardonnay, which I think they're up over 16,000 cases now. Just, uh, just a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> in my grocery store, probably that many. But uh so how did that, I mean, how as an entrepreneur, I mean, boy, you know, this is where so many of us think, you know, all these brands, they're, they're built on, uh, you know, just some brilliance and a great strategic plan and everything. But, you know, that one of the best ways is crisis. <laughs> you know, you got the fruit's going to spoil. Nobody's buying it. I got to do something with it. So how did it, how did that go from, you know, the, grower to really vintner winery to you know one of the world leaders it, it happened with such immediacy and urgency you're absolutely correct necessity is the mother of all invention you uh, he either turned that crop into wine quickly or you know again he begins to risk the viability of this land investment he made in lake county um, and and the, the early steps were not successful. He crushed that fruit in 1982. Fermentation got stuck, and he really didn't know how to unstick it, meaning yeast converts sugar into alcohol through its metabolism, all the technical stuff, but the yeast didn't do their job. So he had to call in a couple experts. They helped him out. They told him what they were going to do. It was a, a bit of a complicated process, but he was able to achieve – at the end of 1982, a really nice glass of wine 
that he went out the next year and sold. And I think that's when the, the bug, the entrepreneurial bug really bit him. He saw, wow, I, I've got something here. And there's a lot of familial things that take place, uh, some internal family things. Um, his wife of over 20 years, Jane Kendall, and he really begin to um, separate at that point because Jess wanted to pursue this completely, intently. And Jane, after being married over 20 years and, and having this great life, having this career as a, as a lawyer, and so she couldn't see why he wanted to go down this entrepreneurial path. And that eventually led to the, 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 the disillusion of their marriage. And uh, the real entrepreneurial piece begins in 1986. Jess had recently been divorced, had recently remarried a woman named Barbara Banke, a lawyer like himself, a real estate specialist like himself, somebody with a risk for appetite like himself, and the first serious marker on their path uh, to building this vineyard empire was 1986 when with very little capital they because all the capital that the wine company had been generating was flowing right back into the business Chardonnay went from what's Chardonnay in 1982 to by 1985-86 White Zinfandel was established and the next thing on everybody's checklist is well I've had White Zin and I'm supposed to be sophisticated, so sophisticated wine drinkers drink Chardonnay. So what's the Chardonnay I'm supposed to drink? And Jess Jackson was there with Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. But the secret to the success of his Chardonnay was a vineyard in Santa Maria Valley, Santa Barbara County. This was from the very beginning, back in 1982. I didn't get into the details, but that was the real lightning in the bottle. And if he didn't capture that lightning in the bottle, capture own that lightning in a bottle he risked losing the quality that was really the the heart of his success so he risked everything and i mean everything to purchase this 12 million dollar vineyard of some 1500 acres in the santa maria valley to ensure continuity of fruit source because at the end of the day wine quality is predicated on one simple issue if you own the vineyard and you grow the grapes, you have a continuous supply and you have quality assurance. And that's really the beginning for Jess was 1986 and the purchase of that vineyard. And once he had that vineyard asset, then all of a sudden that asset was used to leverage another vineyard and another vineyard and another vineyard. And over that 30 year period from say 19, you know, that some 30 year period from 1986 to Jess's passing in 2011, Jess acquired over 40,000, 45,000 acres of land in California alone and eventually planted of that 45,000 acres some, some 10,000, 12,000 acres over his lifetime. And it's that land that anchors the success of our business. And it's a totally different approach than most other, I will say not most, than any other of the top 30 wineries in, so, in the United States. So what, what is the big difference, Larry, between uh, you know, what Kendall Jackson and the Jackson family is doing? Land ownership. It, it really boils down yeah. to that. I think th there are many big, both privately held and publicly traded companies that are part of the largest wine producers in the United States and in the world for that matter. And most publicly traded companies eschew 
this the asset on the balance sheet. Assets cost money, and they they don't necessarily lend themselves to a publicly traded equation of success. Where Jess's vision from the earliest days were, I see something that his entrepreneurial vision was very simple. I see something nobody else sees. If I own the land and the land is currently available and the land is currently very inexpensive, I'm going to be unlike anybody else in the business. And I'm not only going to buy this land, I am going to treat this land with the greatest respect because my vision isn't a vision of my lifetime or my children's lifetime. I hope my vision won't be complete until my grandchildren own this land and maybe their children own this land. And we, we begin to build something in America that's never been built. And in Europe, you can look at the Antonori family. Jess always mentioned the Antonori family of Tuscany in Italy as somebody he admired and, and, and wanted to achieve a similar degree of success. The Jadot family in France and Burgundy, uh, the Torres family in Spain. These are multi-generational families. And one of the things that separates these families from all other families, they own land. They respect the land. They take care of it. And But to own that land requires enormous risk and enormous investment. And that was something that Jess was willing to do that nobody else was willing to do. And that is the difference between Jackson family and most others in the business. No, that's a, it's a great story, Larry, and it's, it's a powerful one. And you start thinking about the capital requirements of, you know, of that many acres of land and the dedication to really, you know, being vertical, vertically integrated to make sure yes. everything, you know, control the quality so that every bottle tastes the same. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, something for all of us as entrepreneurs is thinking about, you know, what are we looking to build? Many are, you know, want to build a legacy. Others are building businesses to sell. What, whatever you're doing to be successful on purpose and Jess's lessons have been really amazing. Now, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit, Larry, because I, I want to take advantage of you here, you know, with all your experience and so on. Um, uh, your fellow entrepreneurs, I mean, certainly me and others. I mean, I enjoy wine. Uh, I'm, I'm listening to the history and I'm going, you know, not counting Boone Farm apple wine that I drank early. <laughs> uh, the uh, date myself here. Uh, you know, really starting, I grew I professionally, I grew up in upstate New York, but uh, grew up professionally here in California. I moved out in uh, uh, 77 and uh, you know, really saw a lot of this happening and uh, and have partaked along the way and really enjoyed it and was not a wine drinker when I first came out. And, you know, one of the things I see so many people do is struggle with wine. Um, and particularly now, I mean, it used to be a little easier when there were only, you know, the few choices that you talked about. <laughs> you know, the starting with a white Zinfandel, a Burgundy, maybe, you know, a Bordeaux or something like that. And now... Um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's so confusing. How, how do you help, help, help people like me and others, you know, not get caught up in, you know, the, the whole big wine side, but, you know, just enjoy it. Yeah. So I'll be honest with you, John, as I walked, I was in Seattle and Portland a couple of weeks ago. I don't always spend time in grocery stores. I really do focus most of my time 
selling on the restaurant side of the uh, the business. But I was in grocery, and it's a it's a huge piece of our business. And I walked in to stores in both Portland and Seattle, and literally was overwhelmed by the wall of wine that faced me. Mm-hmm. And as I walked down that wall of wine, I, I, I was shocked that there's so much that I don't even recognize anymore. I'm in this business my entire life. I'm immersed in it on a daily basis. And there's stuff that I don't recognize. How could that possibly be? And I can't imagine as a consumer how much more overwhelming it would be. So I, I always have bits of advice for, for people who love wine, but, but can be a little bit overwhelmed. And the first bit of advice is trust somebody that's immersed in the business. And in a retail setting, that means if you've got a good local wine shop in your neighborhood that you frequent, ask for their advice. I'd walk in there and if I wanted to spend 20 bucks on a bottle of wine, I'd say, I want to spend 15 because they're automatically selling you up about 10%, 15% anyway. So realize that that's going to happen. And, and number two, give them some advice. If you can describe what you want to smell, what you want to taste, what you want to feel with, with just some little degree of uh, description, you're going to get a, a, a better opportunity to get the wine you want. And if you don't, then at least you can go back to that retail assistance and say, hey, look, I didn't like that. There was a little too much oak. I don't like all that vanilla and smoke and toast. I like a wine that's a little bit more bright and fresh and fruity. Just those two little bits of advice, vanilla smoke toast means oak, and I don't like oak. I want something that's clean, fresh, and fruity. That would give a retail salesperson all the, uh, all the input they would need to get you something that you're going to enjoy. And the more exchange you have with that person on the aisle, the, the, the more accurate their response is going to be. In a restaurant setting, trust the sommelier. Again, have some input. Know what, you know, it's, I normally like this wine, and I like it because, well, it's soft and it's, it's easy to drink. Or I like it because it's got lots of chew and pucker inside my cheek. Don't ever be embarrassed in describing aromas, flavors, and textures. Uh, because the more you describe, the, the better off you are. And never believe for a minute that you have to spend lots of money to get a good bottle of wine. Now, the other side of that equation is that I can get a great bottle of wine for 10 bucks. I have some bad news for you, folks. <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of great wine for 10 bucks. There's good wine, but when I describe good and great, great means I've got more depth and concentration to aroma, flavor, texture. I've got a sense of place emerging in a great bottle of wine. And that normally isn't going to occur until you have, you're, you're using fruit sources from vineyards that cost more than would be found in a bottle of wine that's, say, 5 to nine ninety nine, something along those lines. Uh, it, it, this is great, great advice here, Larry. Uh, you know, I, I've I'm thinking of uh, particularly at Cordoval. I love you know the sommelier. I would uh, really had a great relationship or have a great relationship, and um, I like to try new things because I would I wouldn't take the risk without the guidance, and you can just share what you like and boy and the range you want to spend and. I, you know, I, I have that opportunity, and and the same with a, we've got one local grocery store here that is not a chain. It, it, the, the people are just passionate about yep. wine, and you go in. My wife, who doesn't drink, will go in and say, "Well, this is what we're thinking, and what would be." And 
uh, you know, she even has fun buying it because they, you know, they want to share their passion with you. It's not, I think sometimes we get caught up in the wine snobbery type thing. And, uh, you know, the people who really enjoy wine, you know, want to share it with people who are just discovering it. I, I, one of the, one of my favorite things to, I've, I've created a little, a little tasting program called So You Think You Can Taste sung to the tune of So You Think You Can Dance. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little blind tasting. And for friends and family, uh, if you're, if you're going to plan a little party and you want wine to be a little centerpiece of it, I would simply buy three bottles of wine, throw them in a brown bottle sleeve, and they could all three be Chardonnays. And just ask these four basic questions of everybody that tastes the wine. So you think you can taste, hey, which of these wines is the most expensive? You have such a great palate. Well, so you show me which of these wines is the most expensive. And I'll have my little Kendall Jackson Vintners Reserve Chardonnay that's about $12.99, $13.99 a bottle. And you can bring $30 bottles. This is the great thing about wine. It's subjective. And there's no such thing as a good, better, best proposition to an individual. There's just a subjective proposition. Do you like it or do you not? And so th this little this little blind tasting is often a way to disarm everybody, make it lots of fun, and you know, see if you can pick out, hey, which of these is most expensive? Which which of these wines got the most critical acclaim? Did Robert Parker give this a 94-point review? Did the Wine Spectator give this a nice review? Or did all these wines get really bad reviews? But it's okay. You still like them anyway. Who cares what they think? Your opinion's much more important. Yeah, and I, I, th I think one of the things you said uh, at the dinner, I remember, you know, loud and clear, trust your palate, you know, and, yep. and this is, you know, you like what you like. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Wine is wine. Like anything that, you know, that, that you smell and taste and feel is utterly subjective. So bourbon's all the rage these days. Like bourbon has become the hotsy totsy. You know, if you can get yourself some Pappy Van Winkle, 23 year old, you have achieved some status. And I was tasting a, a it wasn't Pappy, it was a, a, a barrel proof bourbon called Elijah Craig that is supposed to be the cat's meow, right? The stuff. I couldn't drink it. It was overwhelming. Like, I, I don't want to smoke Cuban cigars. They're overwhelming. Give me a soft Dominicana and I'm very happy. And I don't necessarily need the, the Lafitte Latour to make the wine analogy. I'm, I'm happy, you know, with the aromas and flavors and textures that I like. And I've explored those over a long period of time. That's my advice to any wine drinker. Explore, have fun, be adventurous, uh, but don't necessarily feel like you have to meet the standard of the wine. No, no, no. The wine has to meet your standard of like or dislike. Well, I want to, things, I want to bring up, uh, Larry, a tool that I like a lot um, and have you comment on it. Uh, Corvin, uh, my wife doesn't drink. We have nobody else at, at the house other than when friends come over that drink. I do like a glass of wine with most meals, and I like having variety. I don't want to have one bottle and then have it not taste as good by the you know fourth day type thing. And it's a little uh, argon gas hypodermic needle you put in, and the wine is supposedly good for years. I don't know that I've ever let a bottle go for years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I'd advise that either. Yeah, but, uh, boy, it's, it's, it's really opened, uh, at home, the ability to, to have, you know, I love in at restaurants, we can have one glass, but oftentimes it's not the wine I want. You know, now I can have that and it's just, you know, and I'm learning more about wine because of that tool. So I just want to recommend yeah. that. 
yeah, the, the, the tool has been embraced by the industry in, in all facets. So the restaurants are using it because they can offer a much more expensive wine by the glass with no fear of loss, that the wine's going to remain in solid condition. So as you've described it, it's literally a little tool that has a hypodermic needle that you insert in through the cork, literally through the cork, and you can pour a glass of wine through the tool, through that little needle, wine is uh, brought out of the bottle. But in the place of the wine, there's a little blanket of argon gas, and that argon gas displaces air, and air is the enemy of wine. So it prevents the wine from deteriorating. It's a, it's a fascinating little tool. So restaurants have embraced it because they can pour more expensive wines by the glass. More expensive means higher ring, more profit, all those good things, and no loss. Our side of the business, on the sales side, we're using it with some of our more expensive wines for the very same reasons. We can have a bottle of wine out in the marketplace and sample a much greater number of potential clients with it with no fear of losing the bottle of wine or having to use more samples. And you've seen the, the success of the tool at home. Uh, it just eliminates fear and it eliminates loss. And yeah, it's a bit of an expensive proposition. I won't kid you. It's a $300 investment. But very quickly, that $300 investment is made up because you're not going to lose a $200 bottle of wine or a $100 bottle of wine. Uh, you can maintain it over a, over a longer period of time. Now, to your point, I don't necessarily know that I'd recommend keeping a wine under a blanket of argon gas for weeks and weeks and weeks because I think eventually the wine begins to lose some of its character. A little bit of oxygen actually is what allows wine to evolve, and it's a very long and complicated equation but uh i would say that in in the short term over that two-week period the coravan is a brilliant tool and if you haven't drank that bottle of wine in two weeks then get some help yeah no yeah, drink it. i do have drink friends it. that will come over and help me finish yes. it if i i run into trouble here <laughs> yes, exactly. okay let's go to the ne uh next segment and this is the book of the day and uh you had mentioned to me uh, a book that i just bought because i wasn't aware of it and let me, I'm going to put up on Amazon, uh, A Man in His Mountain, the everyman who created Kendall Jackson became America's greatest wine entrepreneur. I mean, I'm really looking forward to a good read. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, uh, the book is an authorized biography. It's written by a Pulitzer Prize uh, winning investigative journalist. Uh, I always get confused on his last name, and you've got it pulled up there. I believe it's Edward Humus, H-U-M-E-S. Uh, and it is. Yes. Yeah. So Mr. Humus was literally invited into Jess's life for about a – it had to have been a two-year period. And, and I think as Jess realized his mortality was at hand, he wanted his story to be told from his perspective. But not only did he tell his story, I think he, he pushed the author – to go investigate from the other side, uh, and and the author did. So this isn't just a one-sided, um, uh, Pollyanna sort of tale of Jess Jackson. Uh, you know, he was a mercurial individual. He 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 was a he was an entrepreneur. So he was driven. He was passionate. He was hyper competitive. And when you're driven, passionate, and competitive, you're going to create some some conflict. Uh, some of that conflict was positive. Some of it wasn't so positive. And over the years, some stories evolved about Jess and how he ran his business. And I think this, this biography is really a chance for him to tell the, the real story. And it, 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 it tells the story of Jess's first marriage. And, and it tells the story of Jess uh, 
meeting and marrying Barbara Banky and then building the, the Jackson family empire together from the mid 80s onward. Uh, and and it, it talks, it actually introduces you to Jess Jackson through his avocational passion, which is thoroughbred racing. Um, Jess changed the thoroughbred industry single handedly and along the way created some enemies that are probably his greatest enemies to this day. Uh, Jess's horses twice were uh, thoroughbreds of the year. Jess was never even considered as thoroughbred horsemen of the year by the industry. So, you know, it, it, it really is a tale of an entrepreneur uh, that you meet as someone who's a lawyer and successful but doesn't have an entrepreneurial vision. The entrepreneurial vision presents itself to him, and he pursues it wholeheartedly throughout the second half of his life. It is, it is a great read. I hope you plow through it as quickly as I did. Now, look yeah. forward to it. And let's go to the next segment. And Larry, this is the application of the day. What would you recommend to your fellow entrepreneurs uh, on your smartphone? Well, as, as entrepreneurs are wine enthusiasts, uh, probably I, I think entrepreneurs are probably more wine enthusiastic than most other people uh, because they need a little break at the end of their day, to a, little, a little wine down, wine down. And uh, one of the things that constantly, the question I get constantly is, hey, I had a wine, but I don't remember that wine. And it started with an M and, you know, um, they're prodding me for some information and I have no idea what wine that is. So Vivino, V-I-V-I-N-O is an app you can download right to your smart device. You take a picture of the label and visual identification will uh, tell you what that wine is. It'll look up information on price. It'll look up information on the Internet. If your um, locator is on on your uh, smart device, it'll find that wine within a, you know, a five, ten mile radius of you in a retail setting. Uh, it, it's just an easy way if you're at a tasting, you're at a dinner, you're at a friend's house, and you have a great glass of wine and you want to know what that is so you can buy it. Just download Vivino, snap the label, and you've got that thing saved. And next time you're in your retail store, you can pull it right up, lickety-split, and away you go. You have all the info you need. Uh, that's great. And let, let's go to next segment, which is resources. And I've got the uh, Jackson Family Wine Collection, uh, jacksonfamilywine.com, uh, up on the screen. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the uh, family and the website. I mean, some unbelievable, beautiful pictures are flashing well, I, by. Yeah, Jess had a few passions aside from wine, and horses, clearly one of them. Another great passion of Jess's, a helicopter. He loved his helicopter. It allowed him to travel around Northern California, as well as down to Monterey and Santa Barbara very quickly. But having that that helicopter eye view of a vineyard uh, makes for some amazing pictures. And we certainly take full advantage of that on jacksonfamilywines.com. That is our website. It's a relatively new consumer oriented website and it does tell the family's history and it allows you to see not only Kendall Jackson as a part of Jackson family fine wines, you can see all the other pieces currently there are 40 plus different brands under the Jackson Family Wines umbrella. And uh, there are brands that you will be familiar with, things like La Crema, things like uh, 
uh, Murphy Good, things like Cambria. Those are some of our foundational pieces. But we also have uh, very small little properties like La Coya and Cardinal. We own land in Italy, in Australia, in uh, South Africa now, in Oregon. So this is a chance for you to, to view the entire uh, Jackson Family Fine Wines portfolio in one fell swoop. Very easy website to navigate, very intuitive. And if there's one thing I would ask you to take a look at is, yes, we own vineyards. And yes, we farm. I think one of the things that separates Jackson Family from all others is the sheer enormity of vineyard that we own and the fact that we farm responsibly, sustainably. Uh, if you've invested over a billion dollars in vineyard assets over your career, the last thing on earth you would ever want to do is harm that investment and not only not harm it, but, but improve upon it. And it's the way we farm that allows us to maintain our continuity, our quality and our success. It's that sustainable approach. No, this yeah. has been great. And let me uh, share. There's so many. I mean, we've got the one side, the entrepreneur and the persistence and, you know, really chasing your passion, but doing it in a very smart way, understanding how to leverage the main capital, the real estate, choosing wisely, being there for the long term, the sustainability, uh, the whole family, making sure that the succession is there after you're gone. But on the, the wine side, I mean, you know, what... You know, just enjoying wine, building a relationship locally. I think that's just so important. The having the ability to provide feedback and to trust your own palate. Uh, you know, you enjoy what you enjoy. There's no right or wrong. And uh, for all of us as entrepreneurs, never, ever forget that we're in business to enjoy more life. We're in business to build the quality of life, not only for ourselves and our enlightened self-interest, but for all stakeholders, our clients, our teammates, our partners. And certainly Jess said the whole organization has done that, Larry. So I wanna thank you for joining us today. I wanna to remind everybody that you can go to aesnation.com and you'll see a transcript of our conversation, all the show notes, all the links that Larry and I've uh, discussed during this and you know what? Go out there and make a difference. Your clients, your future clients are all counting on you to build a great quality of life. We wish you the best of success. Exceptional, remarkable breakthroughs. AESNation.com.